Sickle cell disease, or SCD, is a genetic disorder that affects the red blood cells, and it is the most common inherited blood disorder in the world. This disorder is caused by a mutation in the hemoglobin gene, which is responsible for the production of hemoglobin, the protein that carries oxygen in the blood. People with SCD have red blood cells that are shaped like a sickle instead of a disc, which makes it difficult for them to carry oxygen throughout the body. This results in symptoms such as anemia, fatigue, pain, and organ damage. The most common form of SCD is called sickle cell anemia, which affects millions of people around the world. People with this condition have a reduced lifespan and can experience a wide range of complications, including stroke, pulmonary hypertension, and organ damage. The most common treatment for SCD is blood transfusions, which can help to reduce the symptoms and potentially improve quality of life. There are other treatments to help reduce the frequency of painful episodes, and gene therapy can also help to correct the genetic mutation that causes SCD. SCD is a serious condition that can have a significant impact on people's lives. A condition that, in my opinion, does not have enough awareness considering how widespread it is. There are over 300,000 babies born with sickle cell disease every year, and the majority of children in and across Africa with sickle cell disease will die within the first five years of life of preventable causes often before a diagnosis is even made. I have quite a number of friends who are currently living with the sickle cell disease. I've also sadly lost some of my really close friends along the way. In this episode, my wife Dolly and I discuss the sickle cell experience with our good friend's essay, A Sickle Cell Warrior, and his wife, Mary. I'm S.A. Sifo, I'm Nigerian-American, and I'm a sickle cell warrior. Uh, when I was 18, uh, that was the first time the doctor who I was seeing, who was actually a family friend as well at that time, he was the first one to tell me, to sit me down and say, hey, you have sickle cell anemia and this is how it shows up for you you know it's it's a red blood cell uh disease this is how it will show up for you when you're under stress you will have what we call a crisis episode and i remember that period well because i was writing the pre-degree exams for lagos state's university and we were meant to write the exams on a particular day and i had spent two weeks leading up to that day I was in a hospital I wrote the exam with the IV point still on my hand because the plan was to finish and then come back and continue taking whatever IV I had been taking so I wrote it finished got back into the car and drove back and they kept on giving me fluids 
you know, they kept on saying things like I was dehydrated and, you know, I'd, and I, I just knew that, I, well, I felt like I had malaria. Malaria was the diagnosis for anything that was wrong with anyone at that time. So I felt like it was malaria. Uh, but everything about the treatment was different from what I knew malaria to be. So. Hi, I'm Dolly Dabiri, and I'm Nigerian-American. So you never used to get sick before that time? I used to get sick. I got sick almost as frequently as Mimi, my younger sister. So there were signs, right? Like my brothers were not getting sick the way we were getting sick. When they got sick, they were not spending days and nights in the hospital. But we always did. Every, you know, every episode, whether it was malaria, quote unquote, or not, resulted in at least three days in the hospital. My mom, as far as I was concerned, she successfully hid this thing from me. It was only when I was 18 that I started to understand this thing is called sickle cell. Hi, I'm Mari Sifo. I'm an American Nigerian, and I am the wife of a sickle cell warrior. What did you feel like when the doctor told you? Were you shocked? Were you did you were you angry? I I think there was a little anger, but I, it, it didn't. If there was anger, it didn't last long. Uh, for me, what I was trying to understand was, okay, what does this... Because the way I was told, it made me feel less than the normal human being. So all my mind was, oh, shit. So, like, am I just different from every other boy? Like, what what exactly does this mean? So I felt like I was being sheltered. I was being sheltered, you know, is this how life is going to be for, you know, for the rest of my life? Is this how I'm going to uh, live? Those are the questions that were going through my mind. I really wanted to understand more about it. I felt very foolish because to think that I'd been living with this thing all my life and I only really understood it when I was 18, I felt, I felt, I felt kind of foolish. But I think that that same way that my mom was able to keep this from me is what a lot of Nigerian parents have done, even with, you know, with children who have had sickle cell, where they keep, they, they try to shield you from knowing the truth, when really what you should be doing is studying, learning more about it, trying to understand it even more so that you know how to cope with it. We never did that. It was just a, you know, this is what it is. We're not going to talk about it much, but you're not going to do all these other things that your friends are doing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because for me, I would almost think it's a relief to have at least an explanation of what you were experiencing at the time and that you could put a name to it and you could go and research it versus having to struggle and fight for something that you didn't quite understand. Yeah, that, that, is, that is true. So how do you feel 
about being shielded from this for so long. Do you think that if you had a child with sickle cell disease, you would handle it the same way? If I have a fight tomorrow, turn around and have a child who has sickle cell disease, I will want everyone in any institution that child is in to know. Because there are, there are things I would want them to look out for and say, this is a red flag. If you see this happening, please call 911. Or if you see this happening, make sure you let me know. I actually think, looking back, that it would have been better off for, for uh, my principal, my teachers, for everyone to have known earlier. And, and then, I, you know, it, it, yes, is it embarrassing? A little, but it helps that type of um, accommodation, I, you cannot put a price on it. It helps. I spent so much time, at least my parents spent so much time with us in churches, different churches. You know, like we would travel to Abuja because this pastor was going to lay his hand on us. All of those things. With they, they were very, you know, still not knowing what the reason was, but being subjected to all of that, it was frustrating. Why aren't my brothers going? Why is it just me and Mimi going on this trip with you? You know, like it was to the point that once they came and they said, oh, this man said the best form of uh, treatment for anyone with any type of ailment at all was to drink your urine first thing in the morning. Through the line there, I was like, no, I'm not drinking my urine. I've seen what my urine looks like. I'm not drinking it. But you understand, like, they, they my younger sister drank it. But what, what are we getting healed from? We didn't know. But it was apparently this, right? Going through that was hard. In my experience, thinking back to the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of stigma associated with having a medical condition, especially an incurable one like sickle cell disease. My guess is that Essay's parents felt the need to protect he and his little sister from being subjected to a negative experience. The thought that some people may consider them or their kids less than just because of the medical condition they had may have contributed to why they didn't deem it necessary to share, not even with the kids themselves. But not knowing and continuously wondering why one is different and unable to do what their peers were doing must have been frustrating, especially for a kid. I do agree that the education and awareness is extremely important because, as I sat across the table from Essa and Mary, it dawned on me that as knowledgeable as I considered myself to be prior to our discussion, there's so much I realized even I don't know. And I think it's because as a society, we have yet to consider this as a topic worthy of the attention it deserves. The urgency of normalizing the education was dawning on me as I listened. Because if I happen to be in a situation, even with Essay, who's my good friend, I'd be trying to get him to tell me what he needs or to get in touch with his wife, Mary. So it's, it's really important 
that we have awareness. I'm realizing that having the necessary awareness could be the difference between a life or death situation. Or at the very least, being a source of comfort when a sickle cell patient is having a crisis, as opposed to a source of frustration. Well, and you know what's interesting about that is you think that way as a friend, but there's even lack of education in the hospital systems. I find that if there is a point in time, and, and there's always a debate of, is it beneficial for us to even go? If we're in a point where there is a serious crisis, we have to almost weigh what will we gain from going into the hospital versus staying at home because of the education, because of the lack of awareness, because of the stigma, because of maybe unnecessary tests and things that they will put you through with because of the lack of education. And these are medical practitioners. And so when you talk about education around the condition, it is from as simple as I meet someone and I interact with them on a day-to-day basis to I am treating someone in the emergency room at 2 a.m. and they're coming in in a severe crisis. And do I give them medication to try to take the pain away and or ease the pain? Or do I flag them as a potential drug abuser? Do I go send them for unnecessary tests to validate what they're saying? And so it's a very vicious cycle of the lack of education and the awareness around the condition across the board. I came to the U.S. in 2008. We were in Denver. Our experience of the ER in Denver was horrible. They did not know anything about sickle cell disease. The hospital we went to, they gave us countless numbers of tests. And I went there and it took, it, it probably was a solid seven hours from when I got in there before I got any type of medication to help reduce the pain I was going through at that point, right? So that's Denver. And that, from there, we, you know, Mari and I, we came very quickly to this, you know, like, let's truly weigh if there's any need to go to the the, to the ER when, the, when there's a crisis episode, right? And if they, and who, you know, at that point, I'm not the best person to be speaking or advocating for myself. So she needs to go with me. If I'm going to go, she needs to be the one advocating for, for me. And even that, right? Like this, you know, the, the people are slow to believe or I mean we, we've made strides now I'll, I'll be honest with you I think we've made a long a lot of strides now but by the time we got to Houston Texas I felt like the physician who I had had a better understanding of sickle cell disease and so that was the the very first place where you know they said if you're experiencing a crisis as long as it's between these hours and these hours come in here and we'll give you fluids. We'll start giving you fluids. Meanwhile, we'll, you know, try and get a referring doctor for you so that, you know, we, we can get the ball rolling as far as getting you out of whatever the, the situation is. And then I look at the journey to where we're in Atlanta now and Grady Hospital is known for its sickle cell unit. 
if you go in there and you say you have sickle cell disease, they know instantly to start giving you fluids to try and flush whatever it is out of your system. They will give you pain meds depending on how you feel on a scale of one to 10. It's just we've made humongous strides. You're, you're right. But if I my memories of Houston are different from yours, because I think you're right. You're a doctor in Houston. I think there's one something to say about American doctors compared to non-American. I think there's something to say about minority doctors and the understanding versus um, non-minority doctors. But I remember being out in the cold in December and you laying on the ground unconscious because the 911 and the ambulance felt that it was better. Although I was telling them, here's what we needed to do and I needed to get you to the hospital. They pulled you out of the car, put you on the cold ground and tried to run an IV in, in, in December in Texas. And so, yes, we've made strides and I absolutely agree, but I think it's specialist. And I think we are privileged at a point where we know where to go and we know who to talk to and we know how to maneuver our way into the system to get what we need to do. But in the case of the emergency, the normal layman, the person who's typically that triage nurse or that ER person or the um, guy in the ambulance is not understanding the criticality of what you're dealing with and how to manage the situations. Sickle cell disease is mostly common in Africa, the Middle East, and India. Of the 300,000 babies that are born annually with sickle cell disease, most of the recorded cases occur in Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and in India. There are many other countries where sickle cell disease may be found, including some South American and European countries, but it is generally understood that it is more common with people whose ancestors lived in Africa, South and Central America, the Middle East, and India. It is estimated that as high as 40% of people in some African countries have the sickle cell trait. The sickle cell trait is not the same as the sickle cell disease. Having the sickle cell trait means that a person has inherited the sickle cell gene from one of his or her parents. People with the sickle cell trait usually do not have any of the symptoms of the sickle cell disease. They are only considered carriers of the sickle cell gene and typically live a normal life. More than 100 million people worldwide have the sickle cell trait. It's not just common to Africans. A lot of people from the Arab society also are susceptible to sickle cell disease. You can actually have uh, people who are Caucasian who are susceptible to sickle cell disease as well. But the problem is it has been known more predominantly within the Black or African community. And right or wrong, you know, you could argue that's probably why we've made the strides that we've made today, or maybe that's why we haven't made as much strides as we should have, but it's generally known 
more it's it's more common amongst the the African community. It's interesting because I didn't grow up with the awareness of sickle cell. So I'm born in the U.S. Um, maybe I knew of it. I had heard of it, but it was only until we started dating and he sat down and we, we got to a certain point where he said, you know what, if we're going to continue to date and you have to go get tested. Oh, is that, because, is that how you want to tell it or you want me was, to tell it? That was my Should memory. I tell it? Okay, you, so let me let, you, let me let you me tell, tell your you, side of the story. Let me tell you what happened. <laughs> so, I was in England. I was schooling in England, and you know it's cold in Leeds, very cold in Leeds. But I don't like wearing jackets, so I had this cheat code that I was using. I would get into my car. My car was like an oven. Drive wherever I'm going park and then run into whatever building I needed to get into. However, I met Mari in England and we went out this night. I think it was maybe a six weeks into our knowing each other. And Leeds, uh, where, where I was in school, Leeds was a student town, right? So it, it's busy from like 8 p.m. to about 3 a.m., you know, people are just outside, just hanging out, you know, or just coming out of the clubs or the bars or something. So Mari and I went out. I couldn't use my cheat code any longer because Mari was with me. Mari said she wanted to walk. So it was such a beautiful walked. night. It was the light snow. Mari, Mari wanted fish and chips. So we bought fish and chips. Mari decided you know what, let's just eat fish and chips out here by the bus stop, you know, it's in, the cold. in front of in, in front of the nice, train station. Crisp, brisk everything, air. Everything in my mind is saying, dude, you know this is the dumbest thing you've ever done. Like, you should say something. But I'm like, never. I'm not going to tell. tell. So how will she see me? How will she view me? Like, I will, I will no longer be a man if I, if I told her that. Anyway, so... We stay out there, we're eating. And as we're eating, I could feel the cold getting into my my arms, my legs, my arms, I'm exposed. She asked me a couple of times, hey, you're, you're shivering, are you okay? Are you, are you cold? Should we leave? And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. So about 3.30, she says, okay, she has, to, she has to get up early the next day for work. So I took Mari, dropped her at her apartment. As soon as I dropped her at her apartment, I called 911. I was 15 minutes away from my house. I called 911. What's your emergency? I told them. We're sending someone. Someone will be there in the next 20 minutes. I had just enough time to get in, heat up some food, and put in me because I knew that this was about to be ignorant. I knew by this point, my whole body is throbbing with pain, right? The ambulance came. I got in the ambulance and I don't know why, for some reason, by the time I got to the hospital, there was not very good cell phone signal, right? So I couldn't call out and I couldn't receive calls. But for the first 48 hours, I was on fluids. They were giving me fluids. They were talking about giving me a blood transfusion because my hemoglobin level was low. They, you know, so all of these things are going on. Um, I managed to get a hold of Mimi to tell Mimi 
this is where I am. So let mommy know just so that they, you know, they're not calling and they're wondering why they can't get in touch with me. But I wasn't able to get in touch with Mari uh, from the hospital. So I'm thinking, man, I really need to charge my phone. At this point, I'm like, I need to charge this phone because I need to call this girl because she's going to think I'm a demon. And this is not who I am. So on the third day, they, uh, they discharged me. When they discharged me, I was able to charge my phone with, through one of the nurses there. And I saw a missed call. And uh, I called Mari and she was upset. How can you do that? What do you mean? I mean, you know, this is unbelievable. If you didn't want to see me again, you shouldn't. You, you could have been mad enough. You should have said something. And I explained, I said, I'm at the hospital. You're at the what? I'm at the hospital. Why? And I said, okay, you know, I'll tell you. I, I have this thing. I'll tell you about it. But let me just get home. I'll call you. She, what hospital are you at? I told her. And she said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to get you. That was the first time I had to come out and tell her what sickle cell was and how it showed up for me, right? So it was very, very, it was embarrassing. But for the type of relationship that I was looking for out of this, I knew that this was unavoidable. Like I had to have this conversation, better to have it now. Or before you stand out in the cold for hours. Yeah. Could have also been a good idea. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, for me, oblivious. And to get that call, yes, a couple of days. And the backstory is, I wasn't even interested in this guy. This guy has now been chasing me. And then I finally give him the time of day, and then he disappears for days. So to say that I was a little upset would be putting it mildly. So to show up in the hospital, though... um, and, and the truth is, I don't even know why I went to the hospital. You know, I um, I didn't think he was lying. But I also, you know, still felt a little disrespected. But I went anyway because I wanted to make sure he was okay. But for me, that was actually, I can still see the image of him lying in that bed. And there are moments where he knows if he's in a crisis and there's a way that he can hold his hand. And I'll tell him not to hold his hand that way because I remember seeing his hand when I walked into the hospital and it was that way. And that was very upsetting for me to see him that way because I know who he is and I've now seen him in a place where he's not his best self. Um, But that was my first introduction into sickle cell, right? It was, it was it moved beyond something that you hear that somebody has that might be this blood, you know, thing. But what does it really have to do with me? And it's not something that other than a blip in a radar screen of really understanding. And it's amazing how many people I talk to on a day to day basis who truly just don't understand what does it mean? What does it look like? How does it show up? What are triggers? Um, what type of environment if you have children, what does that mean? How do you look out? Or did, were your children even tested? Do you know that you could be dating someone that you have the trait and they have the trait and what that means for you? And so, again, when we start coming back to this root of education and awareness, no, it's not something that we talk about. Um, I now see it more and more. I see the awareness, but I definitely see it predominantly 
um, in the black community. I see even I was partnering with Red Cross and trying to get the funding around the education, um, around how do you provide different services um, is still not at the place where it needs to be. You know, I look at and I remember the um, you remember a couple of years ago, there was this big campaign on social media about ALS. And I think that was amazing. Right. It brought such a tremendous amount of awareness that people who had no idea. I wish that there was something that would give people just the inkling of the impact, because now if I go back in time, I knew people who had sickle cell, but I didn't know that I knew people who had sickle cell. I had a, a, a young man that I went to school with my freshman year in college, had sickle cell. There's a girl who I was who I was really close to in high school. I didn't know she had sickle cell until she passed away. And so it's like people are living with this. And if they're not brave enough to have the conversation or they don't want to be called out in school or they don't want the stigma on them, they are suffering. And I miss school one day. Who's taking the notes for me? Or, you know, my teacher is riding me because I, I put my head down in class, but I just can't hold my head up. And if you don't have that type of support system and you're not communicating, it goes from just being a condition of I'm dealing with in the crisis to now mental issues, now social anxiety, now ostracized, and it becomes this enormous thing that with allyship, advocacy, education, and accommodation, it can shift what that experience is like. Mary mentioned something here that I think is really important to highlight. I'm learning that these are the four most effective ways to support people living with sickle cell disease. Allyship, advocacy, education, and accommodation. Allyship is a lifelong process of building and nurturing supportive relationships with underrepresented individuals or groups with the aim of advancing inclusion. Becoming an ally to someone living with sickle cell disease is critical for inclusion. Next is advocacy. Advocacy is getting support from another person who can help express your views or your wishes. A person living with sickle cell disease can do with a reliable advocate, especially in times of crises where the challenges of communicating while in pain could be very severe. Next is education. We all need to learn, and I cannot overstate this, we all need to learn and understand what this disease is, how it affects people who have it, and how to best support them. Knowing about SCD could help a person who is living with it find relief during difficult episodes or even save a life in more extreme scenarios. Lastly, accommodation. We have to intentionally accommodate people with sickle cell disease as their needs are often overlooked in what is considered to be normal conditions to everyone else. 
Something as simple as climate control in a room or an office, exposure to stressful activity, or even just understanding that each case of sickle cell disease is different, and therefore making out time to develop an individualized care plan for each person living with the condition. Once people get to know about it, the awareness becomes more heightened and the conversations take place more naturally and more frequently as well, right? So if, if I look at the African-American population here, it's about 200,000 every year who have sickle cell disease that come into the population. You cannot have a baby now in the United States without that baby being tested for sickle cell disease. And if the baby has the trait or the disease, they will notify you, they will give you literature to go read up to understand what this means and how you know, the child would need to be cared for going forward. And there are a lot of people who have dedicated their resources to educating people about sickle cell and, and what we can do to, you know, cut down the population of folks with sickle cell. And then there's the two medications that are out now. Adac-VO is one of them. It's an intravenous uh, medication. They give it to people with sickle cell disease. And basically, they create a lining in all of the blood vessels that makes it hard for the sickle cells to be able to get clogged and build up. Right, because they now coat all of the vessels with this, like almost sort of a slimy substance. And so, people who have had on a regular basis maybe had three to four crisis episodes in a month, it was known to reduce it to like one to two uh, in the month. Right? Uh, I took Adagvio for some time. I didn't have anything negative to say about it, but I'll say it literally means that. Once every month, you physically go in somewhere and you take an IV for uh, 45 minutes, right? That's the treatment. There's this new medication that's out there, Oxybrida. I take Oxybrida now. Um, It's basically a 500 milligram capsule. You take three and it's for adults. And I think they've started giving the the liquid version to kids as well. But it, it does the same thing. It reduces the number of crises that one would have and the severity of the crisis as well. And um, since I started taking it, Maria and I agreed that, yes, it, it does work. Now, it, it did have some side effects that I felt like were affecting the quality of life for me. Uh, and so when I spoke with my doctor, we decided to reduce my uh, intake from three tablets to two tablets every day. And then even the timing, change the timing of when we take the, the medication as well. But there, there's de- we've made leaps and bounds in the last, I'd say the last uh, 24 months. The, those two medications are fantastic and they've, they've helped a lot of people. I wonder if education could help reduce future cases of sickle cell disease because some of the projections that I'm seeing from the World Health Organization is that the number of cases is expected to rise. So there's a part of me that's wondering if intentionally educating people with the sickle cell trait 
can maybe help reduce the numbers. But I also see how challenging that can be, especially in countries with larger population of carriers. I do think that first generation is very aware because they've witnessed it. I think our risk is the future generations of I'm, I just carry the trait. And is there enough awareness around carrying the trait and understanding? So he's right at the at birth, you're given a piece of paper. So both of our children are carriers. They have the trait. They are aware of it. Right. But if, OK, 30, 40 years from now, um, they've gone on, they've had children. Yes, it's in the back of their mind, but it's not a dominant then that education, if it's not a consistent conversation, it can get lost, right? And so maybe two to three generations down is where you can run back into the the miseducation of, oh, I have a trade. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, but now I'm I'm in love and I love her and it's not quite the same. And maybe, you know, it's only a 25% chance and I'm willing to take that chance because I think that that's, it's not always that people aren't aware but it's also not a hundred percent guarantee, right? So if you look at um, SA's family out of five kids, two. And so, am I willing to roll the dice? Am I willing to take the risk? Is you know? And so people are, I think, sometimes maybe have the education, maybe still make informed decisions um, that can lead to certain things. So I think that continuous conversation is really important. I think at education at birth, it's important, but you're also leaving that information into the hands of the parents. And SA has a friend who runs clinics in Nigeria to help ensure that kids are getting tested. And there are some parents who are refusing to get their kids tested. And so that also can lead to miseducation or fear. And so there's, you know, there's still a lot to do around do you get tested? Do you understand? Are you having a conversation? Do you know what it means? Um, even when you have the trait, do you really understand? Because there are still some things that come along with having a trait. And I think that that's a, a huge opportunity as far as education goes. So it's my understanding that there is a stigma, not just to the sickle cell disease, but to even get tested in some parts of the world where parents shy away from you know, their children getting tested because they almost feel like it's better if they don't even know that their children have the disease. There's definitely a stigma towards even getting tested in Nigeria. I, I know it's 2022. Don't expect to hear that, but this is the reality. We ran a drive last year, uh, tested about 700 children. Of the 700 children... We had seven of them that definitely had to do a, a second test for them because they came up as having the disease. Uh, of those seven, we were only able to get hold of five. The other two, the parents were like, no, I don't like, what is this? I don't know. I don't want to know. Yes, the child has been sick, but I don't want to know. We cannot afford it. Whatever it is, we can't even afford it. So we don't want to know. And when you, when you see things like that, it's, it's kind of disheartening. The five who we were able to test, 
we, you know, kind of put down some resources. So whenever there's a, a crisis episode or something, they can go to the local hospital uh, there in uh, Ogba in uh, Choir State and they'll get fluids. They're guaranteed to get fluids uh, to help them through the, the situation. It was interesting because I'd, I'd say about almost all of them, the parents felt some relief because they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what it was. They hadn't known how to classify what the issue was. They knew that children were sickly or, you know, always falling sick, but they weren't sure how to. And then the other, you know, the other people just didn't want to know because they felt like knowing meant would mean too much uh, for them to start to want to do and and they weren't in a place to do that so they didn't want to know there's definitely opportunity back in Africa to create the awareness there's definitely a need uh, to do that I think even in America like I am just like thrown for a loop at the fact that you would there would be something wrong and then you go to the emergency room and be having to prove to them that there's actually something wrong that is like unacceptable yeah but Systemically, we know that that's a little bit more than just the disease, right? And unfortunately, the disease is characterized by severe pain. And so depending on the communities and the environments that you're in, if a person of color is going into an environment asking for pain relief, um, then there's a certain stigma that comes with it, right? So I think that, that, that there's a lack of awareness around what sickle cell is, and there. It's in its good intentions, right? Like if they see something, they want to go and explore everything, right? So if I see that you're having chest pains and you have um, acute, you know, chest syndrome, I'm going to want to go run an x-ray and I'm going to want to go get a, a CAT scan and I'm going to want to go and do all of these things without understanding the reason why you're seeing this is because of the crisis. And if you can manage the crisis then you can ease this so it's it's there's stigma there's awareness there's how do I deal with this and all of those pieces fall into play and I think what typically happens um, for people with sickle cell is you have your doctor you know who you can go to and you know you have your hospital so that it comes down to that relationship but if you're moving into a new environment and yeah, we haven't even started talking about it, but mentorship is important. You know, being in in community and involvement with other people who are battling what you're battling so that you can share that. Um, you know, SA mentors a young man that, and I can just in passing might pick up pieces of the conversation, but it's something to see someone else. Like, let's be real. It's something to see somebody else living, just living with the condition at his age. Who at 20, you know, 20. that is, that is huge. Like it, you, you have to tell the story about, you know, the doctor and, and the conversation that he had with you, but you, know, you have like the, the mindset of, like, can you imagine being diagnosed and not knowing what, you know, you, you see these, these, these uh, movies all the time of this is how much time you have. And running that in your mind and every time you have a crisis thinking what does this mean 
Um, so it's, it's, it's such a complex kind of thing to kind of unravel. I don't know. No, it's draining, actually. Uh, and, and something that you said, acute chest syndrome, right? That is usually one of the leading causes of death uh, for folks with sickle cell disease is the acute chest syndrome. While I was in college, I was at Babcock University. Uh, during the weekends, I would, uh, you know, hang out with my friend in uh, Dolphin. And this particular weekend, I had a crisis and I told Fusier, you know, I need, um, I need to go to a hospital. And I think for all the time that I hung out with Fusi, I probably went, I'd say about a handful, where he had to take me to a hospital and I had to get you know, uh, whether it was uh, IV or uh, a treatment. And I went there and bear in mind, I'm this is early 20s now, right? I'm still trying to come to terms with what this disease means for me. I'm very restless. So they gave me the IV. By the time the IV started to walk, I was calming down a bit more, uh, calmed down just enough to hear, you know, the nurse had been speaking with the doctor who was, uh, the attendant at the time, and he was telling her, oh, this patient has a sickle cell. And he said something along the lines of, if I'd known it was a sickle cell patient, I rushed here thinking something was wrong. He's probably not going to make it to 30. And I remember that conversation clearly. I was laying down, I was looking at the fan as it was spinning, and I heard this man say this thing. And I don't think he meant any malice about it. I think what he was trying to say was, call me when there's a real emergency. This is not an emergency. That's, that's what he was trying to get at. But I, I just, um, I took in, you know, what he was saying. And um, I felt really bad initially. And then I feel like Hearing him say that thing gave me a reason now to live. Because before now, I was just kind of, I was coasting. I was just, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think much about things or, you know, think into the future. Uh, but listening to him say that, I said to myself um, that I was going to make, I was going to be 30. That was my thing. I wanted to show this guy I was going to be 30. And I had that conversation with Fussy. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because that became the motivation for everything. If I was having a crisis and it felt like this thing was becoming too overwhelming, I would get angry at the thought that I'm about to make this man's careless talk be the, the true statistic, right? Like I'm about to become a statistic for this guy. And so that thing gave me something to look forward to fight with when I was having crisis. But, I, you know, it's interesting, like, somebody else might have heard that and just be like, why, why bother even trying? And then you heard that and were just like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to beat this thing. And more than beat it, yeah. N not only beat it, I'm going to defy the odds, right? Because it's the what I love, but also what can drive me crazy about him is... Once he decides, and if anybody tells him he can't do, he will do. And so when I think about what 
doors open and what he did from that moment. He did things that nobody would have expected. Forget just a normal, you know, okay, and I'm just a kid who's coming out and I'm trying to make my mark in the world. But I'm also doing that with sickle cell. um, And I'm whatever you tell me I can't do, I will do it and I will do it better and faster than anyone would have anticipated. In the last few decades, life expectancy for patients with sickle cell disease has improved greatly in developed countries. Median survival was estimated to be between 42 and 48 years two decades ago. But more recent data is showing a median of 58. The dramatic improvement in the survival of patients with sickle cell disease can be attributed to modern medical interventions. However, despite the improved survival of adults with sickle cell disease, the life expectancy is still 20 years shorter than that of the general population. And the quality of life is often not great. Sickle cell disease is also very expensive to manage. So families without adequate resources feel a significant financial pinch while caring for their loved ones. You know, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't share that. There was some truth to what he said, right? Because Mimi didn't make 30. Mimi was 28 when she died of sickle cell. So I feel like, in a sense, that was life's way of kind of telling me this thing is real, right? Like, it's it's a reality for a lot of people. Uh, And so I don't take any of what I have now for granted. And it's probably the reason why I'm always, you know, I always need something to to live for, you know, and, and it's not... I won't loosely just use my my wife and kids because it needs to be more than that. I can break down at any given point what it is I'm trying to achieve in the next six months versus the next year versus the next three years versus the next five years. And I need to be in that state constantly, right? Because um, without that, it really is a very... Um, depressing and discouraging battle to fight when you have sickle cell disease. One in three people with sickle cell disease experience depression. In many cases, it goes undiagnosed and untreated. It often goes undiagnosed because many of the symptoms of depression and anxiety are also symptoms of other complications of sickle cell disease. So depression and anxiety, on top of that, leads to an even lower quality of life for people with sickle cell disease. I see a psychiatrist. And I see a psychiatrist because when, you know, it's one thing for for people to tell you, hey, you're going to struggle to do X. When you start struggling to do X and Y and Z, it can very quickly start to affect your mental health too. Um, 
Mimi passed away in 2012. I'm not sure till now what caused it. But after Mimi passed away, my health deteriorated to the point where I needed a walking stick or a walker to move. To, to, I, I, I wasn't mobile. I wasn't 100% mobile for about three years. And I felt like it was easier to find reasons not to live that period than it was to find reasons to live. You know, I, I know some people say, oh, you're being selfish, you have children, you have a wife, but the world as I knew it changed in two years, right? The, the people who were closest to me, like I lost half of them. I think the best thing that could have happened to me was seeing the psychiatrist. I say that because even the gentleman who I mentor now, I told him to see a psychiatrist because of some of the things he had shared with me. And I really do think, you know, because for, for the black community, we shy away from some of these. You know, when you tell someone, oh, your mental health, you need to do something, they, they almost look at it like, you, you know, like, I'm less of a person if I go see a psychiatrist. It means I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. You know, why would I see? But the progress that I made from then till now, I attribute to having a great support system in Mari and, you know, uh, friends like y'all. And then also being able to see the psychiatrist from a mental health perspective, because some days are great. Some days, you know, I can look and totally see only the positives. Most days are not like that. Those are some days. Most days, it's a challenge. Like, I, I remember Mari had been trying to understand what it meant for me from a, on a daily basis to live with this thing. And I asked her one day, I said, hey, so as you're sitting down now, do you not feel any pain? She, it was a strange question then. She said, no, she doesn't feel any pain. But you know, that thing blew my mind. It blew my mind because I could not tell you when I last sat down and didn't feel pain somewhere in me. And my coping mechanism is I, I have tremors. And the tremors, the, the worse they get, the, the higher the, the pain, right, that I'm, I'm dealing with. And so sometimes Mari will place a hand on my hand and that makes me realize, oh, okay, like I was shaking out of control just now and she's you know calmly saying don't worry everything is okay and it's you know I, I, I know that um, I know that I fight but I'm worried about the seven year old who doesn't fully understand how this thing is impacting him or her right and how 
what they need to do, who's going to be their voice, um, you know, to talk about what they're feeling and how they cope. And I just, I think that's, that's where I would like to see progress is not just providing physical accommodations, but also the mental accommodations as well. I think it's a, a lot of, a lot of these battles are won or lost in the mind first. I, I just so happened to be one of the ones where, you know, I, I decided in me that I was going to fight till to get to, you know, past 30. And, and that's what I've, you know, that's how I am. That's, you know, I, I had the support system to do that. But for a lot of people, the battle is lost in the mind first and foremost. I remember one time when you wrote a post when you lost your sister. You know, you wrote this thing on Facebook and I was just like terrified because I felt like, oh my goodness, like he's giving up. He's good. Like, I don't know. I just felt like, but I didn't, I never like realized that you even had like, not just the mental response to that, that even your body like reacted to it because it like the pain and the anguish in even what you wrote I was so terrified I think I, I, I wrote something to you then or something but I was just like oh my god this is not the essay you know that I know he can't he can't think like this no 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 he can't think like this and it's eye-opening to know that you actually did so much work to get yourself out of that and I really admire that I really do. I, I think that was, um, it was down to, you know, support from a medical standpoint. But I think also the support in having a spouse like Mari and, you know, having friends as well who will notice when someone is down, right? And be able to intervene in a thoughtful way to say, hey, um, there's still a lot more to, to live for, right? And, and, and that's, that, that is, you know, if there's one sickle cell patient that this gets to, I think that is the message that I want to get across to them. And if you, if you struggle with who, um, you know, why you need to fight again or keep on fighting, uh, know that first and foremost, you're doing it for us, right? We are, we call ourselves warriors for a reason. Uh, and I want, I want every sickle cell warrior to, to be uh, victorious in their battle, right? So, um, this is, this is as much for them as it is for me as well. And, and if there's, you know, if, if you gain, again, I'll take you allyship, accommodation, advocacy. If you gain one ally or if you find one person who's going to accommodate you for what you have or advocate for you, that is, that is the ultimate goal is to achieve one of those. Or to achieve all three. Or to achieve all three. And I, I think we... I think we would be remiss if we don't talk a little bit more about the allyship of just day to day, 
So I think, again, it's something that you think it's remote from you. You think, I don't know that person or this person isn't in my life. Um, But what I do for work is human resources, right? And so I see people every day um, who come, you know, we, we talk about show up for work and be your best self or bring your whole self to work. Um, and I, I get to see it on both sides. You know, I've seen him go into a work environment that can be accommodating. And I've seen him have relationships with managers who he can be fully transparent and say, hey, today I just can't. And I've also seen him have managers who have been totally oblivious, unaccommodating, misunderstanding, unsympathetic to some very basic core things. You know, no one can understand what it takes for him to drive three hours to go to another site. What could be a small thing for somebody? Oh, I need to go visit another site three hours away. Not a problem. I'll drive up. I'll drive back. That actually can take a significant toll. So your boss, who now knows you have sickle cell, who now says, oh, let's just drive up and drive back in one day. Did you think about that? Did you really process it and comprehend what that could mean, being in a closed space, in a tight environment for an extended period of time? And again, it's something very easy to just fly by. Or the person, you know, when we talk about remote work and I get it, I get organizations that you come into work, but there's also a population that does physically benefit from that flexibility because that one hour commute in, that one hour commute back, that sitting at a desk, that cold environment, you know, like all of these things are minor triggers where He has to set up, depending on the office he's in, do I have a heater? Oh, Ned, guess what? It's against policies to have a desk heater because it could be a fire hazard. So, or the the environment is climate controlled. So because of that, the standard temperature is 67. And again, very practical things, right? I, I get it. I get efficiency. I get all of those things. But now when it comes to the individual, where's the line? And so I think it's the little minor things of understanding. And that's where the education comes in, because you'll understand what cold environments did. I had to learn the hard way, right? I had them out in the cold. I'll never put them out in the cold again, right? You, you learn, but it's only through that education and awareness of making sure that what seems like something small to you could be very significant to somebody. I think about it as a father. We come to you guys' house to trick-or-treat. Hey, guess what? Trick-or-treat in October when the cold front comes through? No. You know, and so it's, it's all of these puts and takes. It's the conversations with the kids. It's the conversation with your boss. It's the conversation with your spouse, with your in-laws. Listen, there's a reason why I'm not coming down when you come to visit. And it's very easy for someone to take offense or to not understand until you have the full picture. But sometimes it's hard to give the full picture. And it's that being patient, the listening, the asking of questions, the seeking to understand that to me is true allyship. 
Because if you're not doing it, you're just kind of jumping to conclusions or making assumptions on both sides. I I think that work experience is tricky, right? Um, You know, knowing what I know now and from my experience, um, if you ask me, you know, should uh, a sickle cell uh, warrior make their condition known, I would say, yes, make it known as soon as whatever company you work for, do it as soon as possible, right? Because there is a sort of the the other side to the coin there is if you for any reason uh start to become inconsistent either with your attendance or or your ability to show up fully uh for a meeting right people will quickly uh are, are more um likely going to attribute that to a lack of performance on your side as opposed to a medical condition. So you definitely want to, you you know, you want to find a way to have that conversation with your manager. I hope you have a good manager. I hope you have someone who will understand. And if you, you know, I've had people say, okay, so I want to support. What can I do to support? Well, the best thing you can do is just learn about the condition, right? Like think, think about me having to have this conversation all over again, 300 times, if I meet 300 people, when I know that they all mean well, it would be such an easier conversation to have if they just looked up some things on their own, right? And then you can ask questions that will show that you're, you know, you're truly trying to to help and support. And, and I think, you know, one of the other, uh, one of the red flags that, um, that I think as a society we need to be cognizant of is when when Mimi was alive, when she would have a crisis, I found that sometimes I would put myself in her shoes and say, this thing is not that bad. Why are you, why are you making this that bad? Like you should be able to shake this thing off. It's the the condition is not the same for everyone, right? So what might put me down for two days could be the thing that kills the next person. What might put me down for a couple of months could be a blip, you know, a walk in the park for the other for the other person where they didn't even need to go into the hospital. They just took fluids at home and they're okay. They're they're good, right? And and they're back to normal. Um, Usually, I find that that advocacy is hard to come by from family. From family, it's very difficult. There were times where I was the one who was having the doubts about how serious Mimi's condition would have been. Is it really that bad? I mean, I have this thing as well. You sure is that, you know, like... And now I, I would give anything for her to know that that was the dumbest thing I could have done then. And I'm sorry. You know, like, everybody's situation is so different. And if there's so many other things one can do in this world that you should never think 
that they're going to lie to you about something like this. That should be the last thing that comes to your mind. You know, and and I, I had that. I had family members who thought for whatever reason that whatever I was doing was it was illegit or you know I, I was just exaggerating and you know today I don't even engage with some of those people anymore because I need to I need if I'm I am okay knowing for a fact that the three people in my corner absolutely are for me will believe me no I have nothing to to hide or lie about and they will support me with whatever they have than having 10 people for which out of the 10 six of them really think I'm making stuff up when I have a crisis you know like people do in addition to the stigma people do think we make these things up I mean is it before we talk about going into the hospital and doctors asking you questions, people are asking questions in your home. There were times where I was having a crisis where people were, are you sure it's that serious? You know, so like, though, that is, that is one of like, I hope, you know, if, if you're in that type of a situation, you know, if you have one person who truly believes you, Stay with that one person who truly believes, you know, because the last thing you want to do is have to deal with someone, you know, questioning the validity of what you are saying that you are experiencing. I can only imagine. I can never put myself in the shoes, but the concern with if you choose to have children, right? And and what does that look like for you? And... um that process, I think, is a, is a whole nother conversation um, for family and for women. Um, I do think, regardless of the gender, um, and for a whole nother conversation is, what does it mean to be married, right? What does it mean to be in that long-term committed relationship where you're hearing about the ups and downs, you're hearing about those things, saying, Am I willing to sign up for this? Is this till death do us part and going in as much as you can with eyes wide open, but you can never really know until you're in that process. I think that that is something that each individual has to decide. What does that look like for us? And that journey has changed for us going in versus where we are now. And I'm sure it will continue to change because as things evolve and you know it's it's funny um you know depending on i can do this by myself or i need the support or i'm you know like all of those things have an impact on your circle whatever that circle is i think it is it's something else in what does that partnership look like and how to be that support system but also take care of yourself so that you can be the support system that you need to be. I, I really, I've only now gotten to a point where I really do enjoy and appreciate taking vacations with the family because for the longest my boys couldn't understand why go somewhere 
by the beach. They would be in the water and I wouldn't be there. I'm the only one who just wouldn't be in the water with them. And, you know, we, we went over this several times. I think Ian was the first one to get it. Ian got it. And as soon as Ian got it, he understood it wasn't anything personal. And he understood that I was having just as much fun just, you know, being being there, being able to share that experience with him. Right. And um, yes, it's those it's those little things that tend to give us the the strength to keep fighting. Right. Like I could I could take I would take a vacation with Mari. She will spend 80 percent of the time by the pool or by the beach and I will spend 40 40 40? <laughs> I'll, spend, I'll spend the other 60 in the room <laughs> with a football game on with, with, a, with a soccer game on right watching that and I'm, I'm getting just as much from this vacation as she is but it took me a long time to be okay with that because that used to upset me how can we come this far and you're gonna stay in the room and watch you know a game on your phone are you kidding me especially if it's arsenal and they're gonna oh, lose yeah. anyway Indeed. especially if <laughs> they're gonna lose gonna right like come on like we could have did this back at home when i paid to watch them lose um so it, it takes a lot and that's that's that that understanding um and you know i guess that's that's marriage also of you know okay i get it and it's okay it's funny though. I remember, I think one of the times when we went to Florida together. I think it was in Florida, yeah. And this, I was like, oh my god, I didn't get a swimsuit. And Essie's like, oh yeah, I didn't get like swim trunks as well. And then we go, <laughs> we go to the hotel, we buy this expensive <laughs> swim trunks. And then I was like, are you going to swim? Like I was really impressed. Like, wow, you going to swim? He's like, no. So why? Why so did you why buy it? <laughs> I collect them for souvenirs. It was so funny. I know it sounds hard to believe. It was so funny to me. I was like, because I was like, oh, he's he's trying to get in the water this time, and he was just like, oh, no, no I'm not. Just, Never I'm even a possibility. Just gonna go sit out there and look good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nigerian American. Please subscribe leave comments, and share with your friends and family. To learn more on how to accommodate, get educated, or become a sickle cell disease advocate or ally, please visit www.nigerianamericanpodcast.com forward slash SCD. Feel free to say hello to me on Instagram or Twitter at LDVadon. That's at E-L-D-E-E-T-H-E D-O-N. My name is LD. I'm a sickle cell advocate, and this is my podcast.